Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Today we have the good fortune to be joined by former ambassador to Portugal, Alan Katz. Ambassador Katz, after helping draft the Democratic Party's national platform in 2008, was appointed to the position in 2010 by then-President Barack Obama. Prior to his diplomatic assignment, he helped form Florida's largest law firm and spent decades in the legal profession. Upon his return from Portugal, Ambassador Katz founded American Public Square, an organization which hosts and engages in fact-based conversations about local, regional, and national issues by using civil discourse to bridge the partisan divide. Since then, APS has formed a partnership with William Jewell College, where Ambassador Katz is now a distinguished visiting professor of political science. From Lisbon, where he joins us now, to Tallahassee, to Washington, D.C., to Kansas City, and more, Ambassador Katz has led a colorful and impressive career in which he's learned a lot about what American democracy needs to thrive. Today, we'll talk about the role civil discourse has to play in contemporary American politics and maintaining democratic health more broadly. Ambassador Katz, thank you so much for joining us. Now, happy to be here. So, how are you? How's Lisbon? Is it nice over there? Well, it's uh, yeah, the, the weather's very nice, and uh, of course, everyone here is riveted on what's going on in the Ukraine. Of course, of course. Uh, because uh, you know, Europe has sort of moved into a, a, a somewhat different position that they've been in, in the past. That uh, in terms of uh, uniting very quickly, opening their doors to refugees, mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, having uh, Germany suddenly looking like they will be. Uh, re-entering the world as a military uh, a participant. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a very significant development. Yeah, it's an interesting time in Europe, definitely, unfortunately. But let's just start off with what you're up to these days, working with American Public Square. I, I hope we laid out the mission of APS correctly in our intro, but could you tell us just a bit more about the organization? What kind of work or events does APS undertake to further those goals? And what is your role now in the organization as the founder? Well, sure. We, we created American Public Square, uh, began back in 2014. And uh, the idea essentially was to create a forum in the community where people who didn't agree with each other could have uh, civil, fact-based conversations and about very controversial topics. The goal was not to turn liberals into conservatives or conservatives into liberals. The goal essentially was just to demonstrate that you could that we have things in common, even if our politics may differ from issue to issue. And we seem to have lost track of the fact that we have more in common, hopefully, as Americans, uh, as opposed to falling into rigid ideological uh, camps. Since uh, 2014, I think we counted up the other day, we've done probably about 100 programs. And everything was was in person until COVID came along. And then, of course, uh, we moved to a virtual platform. Uh, in some ways, we had, to learn how, we had to learn how to do things virtually and still try to have the same impact that we had when they were in person. And... Uh, so we're still adapting, but fortunately, American Public Square has grown. We've got about, I'm guessing, in excess of uh, 500 paid uh, members. Uh, we've got, uh, in 2021, I think somewhere along in the neighborhood of fifteen to 20,000 people at one point or another uh, plugged into one of our programs. Uh, we do a podcast uh, twice a month now, 
And we have a whole series of programs called Cocktails and Politics. And then we have our regular, what I would call larger programs, uh, which would be, uh, we had one on uh, election reform in January. For, and, and we have a number of programs around that topic in the first quarter. The second quarter is going to be around uh, climate change. Uh, and then as the year goes on, we're going to do something else. One of the quarters is going to be on international, and one's going to be on uh, on race. So those are sort of the main tentpole topics, and then we do a whole series of programs around them. You've built this very robust uh, operation with APS, and I, I, I also can't help but note that um, you, you've made these adaptations to to uh, COVID measures, which in some ways have been difficult for everyone, but it's also allowed people to connect, as we are doing right now, across long distances in ways that perhaps were not possible um, before. So that's interesting. But I'm curious, you know, you worked for the Obama administration but you've taken what seems like a nonpartisan turn with APS, although I, I, I don't know, but I assume you've kept, you know, you maintain your relative politics. Um, I'm wondering why that nonpartisan turn, how did you come to be convinced that there was a need for a project like APS back in 2014, and, and in particular, a need for some kind of uh, nonpartisan neutrality, if, if that's a fair way to describe it? Well, okay, I think there are a couple of things that sort of, you know, the, the, the people, the, the, the need to be clear. First of all, as far as how I got there, uh, back in 2005, 2006, when I lived in Tallahassee, Florida, mm-hmm. I was a city commissioner. There was a big fight over a coal plant because uh, the city owned the utility. And, uh, and I led the fight against it, which finally we finally won. But in the, in the midst of that fight, things got very, very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And, and a group of us decided to create an organization there called uh, the Village Square. But the, but the issue really was not the question of simply being nonpartisan mm. it was more it was more a question of, of sort of realizing that we needed bipartisan conversations mm-hmm. from people who were i mean you're willing to well uh, listen to someone else and I, and I think that you know and one of the things that i think that we shouldn't lose sight of is that the real skill is listening mm-hmm. it, the real skill is hearing what someone else is saying not because you therefore embrace it and agree with it and yeah. recognize that they have a point of view that is usually founded on uh, a set of beliefs. And the question really is to sort of be able to separate what's an opinion from what's a fact. And mm-hmm. uh, we've gone to a great deal of, of uh, uh, effort, and, and to some expense, we've been fortunate to get some help from some foundations in Kansas City to create fact sheets. And the reason that our fact sheets are different than other fact sheets, frankly, is because because our panelists are people from different points of view. What we do is with our fact sheets is we have them uh, review them before they're released. And so what you really have is that you have people with different points of view, but they've agreed on a common set of facts. Mm-hmm. That's what we don't have very much of anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so that's useful. Yeah, I mean, I think you started in... 2014, right? And obviously polarization existed back then. I mean, even as far back as 2005, you say with your your story about the coal plant, it's there and it's a problem in our politics for sure. But it seems like nothing launched polarization into the American zeitgeist better than Donald Trump, his campaign and his election did. Um, And I'm wondering, since you started in 2014... If your mission 
uh, changed or took on any new urgency in 2016 after that election. Um, in particular, I just have a little personal story about this uh, that caused me to, to think about this situation. Um, in 2016, I was 17. I wasn't actually all that political when I was a teenager until Donald Trump ran. And I sort of got very fired up about the state of our democracy. Um, and in particular, when he had his inauguration, I remember there was a sort of limited crowd at the inauguration that everyone could see on the broadcasts. And yet you had someone from his campaign, Kellyanne Conway, did an interview that day about how actually the, the, the crowd was much bigger than that. And she started talking about how it was an alternative fact. This was a famous line from, from back then. And I remember I just sort of, I, I thought that was crazy. Even at 17, I thought that was a terrible sign for where we were, we were headed, that we could have one side of the political spectrum saying, well, we have a different set of facts than you do. So I'm wondering if that, if that at all impacted the way you thought about APS and the way APS worked? Well, I think that the, uh, the quote, all idea of alternate facts or that facts really don't matter very much yeah. uh, was to me, you know, I mean, it, it, it didn't start with Kelly and Conway and Donald Trump, right? Mm. Uh, I think they may have, they may have fine tuned it, but the fact mm -hmm. is, is that I think that there, that there's been a, because part of the premise of what we do in the very beginning always was, look, everyone thinks the facts support their position. Yeah. So if you're getting people who agree on what the I mean, no one ever I mean, I've never heard anybody who sort of said, well, I know <laughs> the facts say that up, is, that up is up, but I think up is down. I mean, so so yeah. the idea always was if you can get some common agreement on the facts, then you can have the conversation and the argument, if you will, about what the facts mean. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that was sort of one of the underlying uh, premises. I, I will tell you that I was, uh, I was not prepared, I think, at a personal level to see mm -hmm. the willingness to ignore facts mm -hmm. uh, that sort of evolved. At the same time, I think that if, if we're being fair about all of this, that the media in general has done a terrible job. Yeah. And, you know, when I grew up, okay, you talked about when you were 17, when I was 17 years old, which was a, in the Middle Ages, what happened really was <laughs> is that most people in America had a common well of facts, and it was called the evening news or the local paper. And even though they may have varied widely in their editorial coverage, the reality was, you had this, and then you could argue about whether or not the way to solve the problem was X or Y. And that was the level uh, of, and, and, there, and there was a wide spectrum, by the way, both on the right and the left, as, as to which direction to go. But we kind of got away from that because, you know, the, the notion of social media and the internet and all the things that have been spawned from but the idea of giving average people a voice which it clearly does, but it also gives crazy people a place to congregate. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that, that and, and, and the problem really has been, from my perspective, that the, the social media has essentially said, we're not liable for, we're just here, people are putting their stuff out there. We're not, right. we, we're not liable for anything that they say or do. That's not our job. And, and say, but at the same time, 
if you try to regulate us, it's free speech. And so it seems to me you really don't get to have it both ways. And I think that somewhere, and I think, by the way, the day is coming because if there's anything Democrats and Republicans are starting to agree on, is the social media platforms either need to be held responsible for what goes on their platform or they need to be regulated. Right. You know, in other words, you know, you don't, you don't get both. And so, uh, but I think that to get back to the question, I think that it's very, very hard because what's happened is, is that the mainstream media has lost most of their credibility with the right. And, uh, and, 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 and I think that the people that I've talked to, Republican friends of mine, who didn't particularly like Donald Trump at all, have said to me, you know, from day one, the meeting was after Trump. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They're right. I mean, yeah, yeah we can argue that, that maybe there was good reason why they should have been, but the point is, is that they were. Yeah. And therefore, what happened was, is if you believe that the Democrats really were pushing an agenda that you didn't think was good for the country, a lot of people just kind of, you know, said, okay, well, we're, we're pushing back because you didn't even give, you know, we think Trump may be this, that, or the other, but you didn't even give him a chance. You were just after him from the day he walked in the door. So all I'm saying is, is that we just need to understand that we got that the way we got it. The other thing, too, that I think is always a mistake if we don't look back and understand our context here. The big, the big, in my opinion, the big break inside of American uh, discourse came after the Roe v. Wade decision on abortion. Hmm. The abortion in its own way was such a, such a social, uh, uh, there's such a cleavage between the sides on abortion. Right. Because if you believe, if you believe abortion is murder, right? if you genuinely believe that, uh, I, there's nothing I can really tell you it would right. make abortion okay, right? And if I believe I should, if I was a woman should have absolute control of her body at any point along the way, there's nothing I could tell you on the other side. And that, right. frankly, is but that's why if you look at the Democratic Party today, there's I can think of one pro-life Democrat in the Senate, okay? And that's Bob Casey out mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania. I can think of probably one or two pro-choice uh, Republican senators, and that would probably be Collins and Murkowski. Right. But otherwise, the parties, you know, you cannot, and no one running for president as a Republican party can be pro-choice. And right. no one running on the Democratic side can be pro-life. So that, to me, has become and remains such an overwhelmingly divide, divisive issue that, uh, you know, we just need to have, a, have that in, in, in the context, because if for some people, that is the defining issue. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's very true. And I have I haven't thought about it as that as that being the dividing line before, but that does make some sense. It rings true with. Um, I remember my grandfather when he voted, he would always tell us he votes for one reason: Supreme Court justice appointees, so that Roe v. Wade can be overturned. And there's lots of people right. like him, who, you know, who, who loads of people approach politics like that. Yeah, yeah. no, that's true. Um, I wanted to turn to, to something you said a, a, a little bit earlier, Ambassador, and that was you, you said that you're not trying to turn uh, conservatives into liberals or liberals into conservatives. And that right, it's, it's how we can have this sort of bipartisan um, conversation. 
revolving right around civil dialogue um, and maybe even compromise. Um, and I think to a significant extent, that is what democracy is about, right? We need to occupy sort of a shared sense of reality, as you as you alluded to earlier, and, uh, you know, an understanding that we don't always get our way. Sometimes the other side wins the election or wins this vote in the legislature. Um, but uh, I do think there's also an extent to which uh, democracy does need to be conflictual uh if it's going to be productive um to take just one example and i'm i'm sure you're familiar with it but maybe some of our listeners are not every week in the uk house of commons the party out of power gets to grill the prime minister and they usually do so quite aggressively right there's yelling and cheering and it gets genuinely rowdy um and so i think we see from that that sometimes political goals are sought or even accomplished through conflict not physical conflict, obviously, even within the context of healthy democracy. And so I'm curious how you think um, that fits together, the idea that sometimes democracy is going to be conflictual. We are going to have sort of maybe even differing first principles when we come to a, a debate um, with the sense that we need to have shared understandings and be able to civilly communicate with one another. Yeah, well, I see this. Well, what happens is this, is that, you know, first of all, uh, look, we all we end all of our programs now where we ask the panelists two questions. One is for them to address. One is, and so what? You've talked about this now for an hour and a half. So what? Mm -hmm. And now what? What's the call to action? And and, and basically, American Public where we are now advocates the organization uh, from a from from a policy standpoint. Our they, our advocacy is is to be able to sit down and have, have People who know something about the topic sit down and have a civil fact-based conversation. Right. And we believe when it comes out of that, I've always believed this, that if you're a decision maker, you have your ability to make a better decision is enhanced by what we do because what we try to underscore is these are not a question you're with me or you're with or you're against me. Mm. These are nuances. In other words, most of these issues have nuances that the media never deals with, that no one ever wants to deal with because the reality is it's so much easier to sort of say, you know, this is the right thing to do. I've decided it's the right thing. The people that I know and like, they think it's the right thing to do. So I don't have to think about it anymore. It's not that, it's it's not complicated. And the reality mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, my favorite Lyndon Johnson line always was that for every complicated problem, there's always a simple answer and it's always wrong. And, and, and I think that, you know, if you look at people who go up with these simple answers for these huge problems that are out there yeah. every day, if it was simple, it wouldn't be a huge problem. Would it? Yeah. And I think we've touched on this a couple times at sort of tangentially in previous questions, but I want to drill down and hit one thing in particular that I'm, I'm curious about your opinion on. Um, so it seems to it seems to me today, and and maybe you disagree with this, and tell me if you do in your answer, because I, I I'd like to know uh, that there is a group of people in America who have effectively, uh, or there are groups of people in America who have effectively given up on democracy. And let me clarify what I mean by that. I think, for example, the January sixth insurrectionists and election denialists, they believed in democracy, or at least they thought they did. Um, and on the far, far left, they too think they believe in democracy. But both these sides seem to think that democracy can only work if it's been purged of certain evil elements. For the January 6th, that's democratic leadership, the 
pedophiles and cultists. And on the far left, it's Republican leadership, the fascists and aspiring dictators. Uh, because there's this big problem, and we talked about this a few weeks ago with Professor Thomas Maine uh, on the podcast. Uh, we'll link that episode in the show notes. Um, he wrote a book, The Rise of Illiberalism. And he talks about how on the fringes of our politics, there are people in particular on the far right who have perhaps unconsciously adopted a strategy to outrage the people that they talk to because people being outraged at them sort of validates their belief that they are marginalized in society. And it, to them, validates the idea that their opinions about society are correct or special. So I have two questions about this sort of that relate to this trend. One, how do we sit down and talk to these people in particular, people who have adopted the idea that they just want to make everyone angry at them because that makes them feel more right? And if we can't, how do even reasonable people, people who don't do this, who aren't at the fringes, how do reasonable people talk to each other when the atmosphere of our political discourse has been so polluted by these loud and angry voices? Well, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's a good question. Uh, I think that you know, you've got varying degrees of people on the extremes uh, in, in terms of looking for particular reactions. You have the people who, you know, there, there's this notion among, among conservatives that one, one thing that they get a big kick out of is, quote, owning the libs. In other words, right. doing something that's going to outrage liberals. Right. And therefore, and, and it's almost like it's not even a serious effort as much as it's sort of like they were just sort of knowing which buttons to push. It's kind of like, you know, when your parents know how to really annoy you and vice versa, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, 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 it sort of almost becomes a, a sport or a second nature. Yeah. In the larger sense, what you have on the right in particular, I think, you have some people there who are, I think, truly, uh, you know, oriented towards uh, an, an autocratic society. I would say the Steve Bannons of the world. Yeah. I think that they, they really see it that way as a way of, you know, turning America back. Or to, and that's a transition stage you have to go through in order to get rid of all of this stuff that they think has been polluting America, which also includes, in some instances, uh, certain types of people. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not, too, not too different, actually, than the, what the communists, when the communists took over, they had you know, the, what they had was they had in Russia and in other places, they had the, quote, dictatorship of the proletariat. Right. And that was a necessary phase you had to go through to get everyone on board with how wonderful communism was going to be. The problem was is they never did get over the dictatorship <laughs> part. And so yeah. it, 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 it becomes difficult. I think that, first of all, I think there are people on the right and the left, on the extremes, that frankly you can't have a conversation with that's particularly meaningful. Hmm. Yeah. And so I've said for all along from the beginning is the people who are you know, the crazy people or the people who are only looking to sort of get visceral reactions to everything that we do or that people do, that's probably a total, I'm guessing, of 20% of Americans. Mm-hmm. Let them just ignore them. If we can get two-thirds of Americans to sort of be willing to recognize that there's a way forward, you know, for this democracy in a, in a way that's good, 
then the, the people on the sidelines can jump in, up and down all they want to. It, it won't matter. Uh, one of the things that we've always talked about from the beginning with American Public Square was we wanted to create a safe place for people who could come, disagree, not be attacked verbally, hmm. to just basically be able to sort of be among people who may or may not agree with them, but not feel, and not walk away thinking that they had been, you know, to find the experience so unpleasant that they would never go near it again. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, we're somewhat limited on time here, but I just have one more question that I wanted to ask. Um, when I studied international relations in college, we spent a good deal of time learning about diplomacy, obviously, as well as mediation and bargaining processes. We discussed things like the formation of interests and identities in international politics and how different countries or groups develop their relations, hostile or friendly, that they do and how they come to fight or cooperate. A lot of that stuck with me, sparked some interest in pursuing some type of career in foreign policy, which obviously I haven't done, although I'd still call myself something a student in the field. I assume you know where I'm going with this, but I'm wondering how your work in international diplomacy has informed your work at, at, at American Public Square. Have you found your diplomatic experience relevant, and does it shape your approach at all? Well, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience, and I learned a lot. I think it probably, in some ways, I think I brought to uh, what I did as a diplomat, the skills that I developed for that, which mm -hmm. essentially was built around uh, developing personal relationships. Mm. And when you develop a personal, which is, which is sort of a, a, a micro version of what we try to do with American Public Square, which essentially is, if you have a relationship with someone, you may disagree, you may, you know, you may like this, they may like that, but... There's, a sense, there's an essential element of trust that exists yeah. at, at such a fundamental level that you can get past any of these things. You may not, again, you may disagree, you're not going to agree. You're not, I mean, when I was a diplomat, I had a very good relationship with the foreign minister, and from time to time, ambassadors were asked to bring what are called demarches, which essentially are requests from, one gov from our government of America to the host government. And I, and I remember the times going and, and, and the foreign minister letting me smile and said, you've done your job, you've delivered this, thank you very much. Which well, was his way of telling me, hey, this is not going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't going to sort of uh, ruin our relationship. And, uh, and when we needed them to do some things that, frankly, were hard for them to do, it was the existence of these personal relationships that made such things possible. Right, uh, yeah. I want to add one other thought, and this sort of was a postscript for this for you all to think about. Yeah. If you, if you take what we're talking, what we've talked about, American Public Square, what we're trying to do, what we think, what we sort of try to emphasize is what's important. And you look at what's going on in the Ukraine today, what you realize is this you realize that Putin's view of the West which was formed obviously in his KGB days and also with, with the before, and then the destruction of the USSR, which to him was the great tragedy of the 20th century. And then he saw uh, the West beginning to bring Eastern European countries into NATO. His first point he saw at the time was an attempt to, you know, make Russia even weaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that what happened was is that. Uh, we, I think the perspective of the West was no, no, we're trying now that the Soviet Union is going, we can all enter into an international security agreement that's good for everyone. 
And I don't think either side really was believed what the other side was saying. Mm, yeah. And now you fast forward that 20 some odd years later, and clearly what you have is you have a situation where no one really is hearing what the other side is saying. And as a result, we have this horrible conflict and where the results of which are going to be bad regardless of what there are basically no good scenarios to come out of this. Right. And for the first time, you know, 30, 40 years, we have people talking about nuclear weapons. Yeah. And uh, as someone who was alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis, let me assure you, those are very scary things to think about. So my point, Lord, the point is, is that there are it, this inability to understand, even recognize what someone else is saying, has a tendency to have a lot of long-term damage. And I think that we in America have a lot of that uh, with people who think that big government's the problem. Anyway, and I was thinking about it the other day. Someone was telling me what they were going through to try to get something worked out on uh, some permit that they needed, and. I said to someone, I said, you know, that's probably their only experience with government. Yeah. And they've been bounced from one office to the next. And when someone comes along and says, big government really, you know, so, and I come along and say, we just put more money into government. They're looking at me like I've lost my mind. Right. Because their context is so yep. different. And we think until we listen to what people are telling us, we're not going to understand their context. If we don't understand their context, then it's very, very difficult to move forward. Uh, in a way that I think we need to in America, which essentially is nobody gets everything they want. Right. And everyone's not even willing to sort of give up something for the common good. And uh, until we can develop a way that people feel that their individual rights are not being trampled on while they're willing to, to give something up of that for the common good, uh, it's just going to be hard to get back to where I think we need to be. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of those things resonate really strongly with me and I think Harry as well, oh, yeah. both of us at Spectacles. I mean, yesterday, so the day that we're recording this, uh, we've just published an article on explaining whether Ukraine is really a democracy because we thought it was an interesting topic and uh, true to the Spectacles sort of angle to look at democracy. But Harry and I spent a while talking about writing an article about how neither Russia nor the West in the lead up to this conflict really seemed to be listening to what the other was saying. So it's funny that you highlight it because you see on the West that they're, they're sort of saying, um, you know, if you invade Ukraine, we're going to sanction you to an unbelievable level. And Putin says, if you don't promise that they won't join NATO, then you're going to see some very bad things happen. And I don't think either side, it seems, really believed the other side was telling the truth was really being honest. So I think that's a microcosm of, you've highlighted the sort of uh, 40 years that this has been going on. Right. Uh, 30 years. But I think you can see it too in just the past month and a half in a sort of micro way. No, and I think, I think you're right. I think what you've got now is, you know, if Tom Freeman wrote an interesting comment about a week ago, when he essentially, when he said that okay, the, the invasion of the Ukraine in this war is something that is Putin is created this, manufactured it, responsible for it. But the United States and the West were not just innocent bystanders. And back in the 90s when they were expanding NATO, uh, I remember talking to a former boss of mine on Capitol Hill, who was a very prominent uh, Democrat, who told me that uh, he thought it was, it was insane. 
He said, you're out there poking the Russian bear. Why would we do that now? And, uh, you know, it turned out, unfortunately, he was right. So it's just, it's just it doesn't, you know, I think we need to understand that, that we, we have to avoid one uh, aboutism. In other uh -huh. words, there's always somebody else who did something bad, which doesn't justify you doing something bad. Right. Uh, but we have a tendency to say, well, what about this and what about that? And, and really the, the issue is we need to sort of be able to evaluate things on their face as to what they are. Hmm. It's important to understand what led up to it. But the point is, is bad behavior is bad behavior. Yeah. It's not less, it's not, not bad behavior because you behave badly. Therefore, I can. It just doesn't work that way. Well, that's a, a heavy note, but I think a, a very sharp one from someone who has experience in the field. So I hope that our listeners heed that. And I think that just about wraps everything up for us. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have you. Okay. Uh, good talking to you guys as always. And uh, take care, guys. Stay safe. Yeah. All right. And same to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.